0: The privilege that's ours this afternoon is a high one indeed. To be able to assemble in the way that we are, to assemble for the purpose of offering our heartfelt homage and our obeisance to the God of heaven, for certainly He has been awfully good to us to grant us life, to grant us the blessings that He has. I realize that as we began a series of lessons last Sunday evening, we'll pick up with that series tonight, I hope that you'll keep the Bible open there. We'll be looking at a number of scriptures this evening surrounding a lesson I've entitled, The Holy Spirit Part 2, Creation and Revelation. Those two aspects will have a rather dramatic part to play as we move through the lesson this evening. This introductory slide, as much as anything, is a very quick recap from last Sunday night, but also a little bit of a preparation for this evening we learned, if I may quickly remind us, that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. It's not it. It's not a force. It's not merely some matter of influence. He's a person. And on many occasions, Jesus, of course, referred to him with masculine gender pronouns. In fact, that's the only way that the pronouns are ever used with respect to him. So just like masculine is used with reference to both Jesus and the Father, also used with respect to the Spirit. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it does prepare us to give some appreciation then to the Holy Spirit's role in creation, as well as the Holy Spirit's role in revelation. In fact, this will be the first of a number of lessons that will focus in one way or another on the work of the Holy Spirit, What does the Holy Spirit do, and how does He do it? Well, those will be some of the things, over the next several lessons at least, that will be parts of our discussion. Perhaps it'd be fair to say that the next slide will be a very key one. You might want to be turning in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to revisit that opening saga, the opening proclamation, if you please, in the Word of God. And as we do that, we'll take careful note of verses 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 1. These verses are very familiar, of course, and yet they continue to say, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And as we pause at that point, might I call to your attention some of the notes I've placed on that slide. First of all, it does clearly say that in this creative effort, verse number 2 says, the earth having been fashioned, having been formed at this point, it carefully notes the earth was without form and void. As you can see on the slide, those kinds of ideas bring before us the reality that the earth did not yet have the features that God wished it to possess. It didn't have yet the characteristics that would be appropriate and that would be a part of the will of God. It merely says it was without form. It was void. But isn't it impressive that in that condition, the next sentence says, "...the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters." In that state that was still somewhat chaotic, or at least, again, it was not finalized in its form, we note that the Spirit of God in the original word carries a thought of it was brooding. I know the King James reads it, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Again, it seems to suggest more of a hovering. It seemed to suggest more of a brooding over those waters. And at that point, you and I recognize what came next with the Holy Spirit brooding over it. I would think that there's a bit of a commentary given to us, found later in the Old Testament. It's it's Job 26, verse number 13. You may want to go ahead and be turning to there, because I'd like to at least read that somewhat short verse. Job 26, verse number 13, in describing the work of the Spirit in creation, said. By His Spirit, He hath garnished the heavens. His hand hath formed the crooked serpent. I'd like to direct your attention to that word, garnished. Again, by inspiration, this presentation in Job 26 reminds us that the Spirit of God, apparently, in the the sense it was brooding over those waters, we now appreciate that the heavens were garnished by the work of the Spirit. Now, almost immediately that begs the question, what does this word garnish mean? You and I are pretty familiar with what's involved as perhaps a woman garnishes a table. She prepares it. She beautifies it. Well, could I invite you to notice? That's literally the meaning of that word in Job 26. The Spirit of God brought beauty, if you please, or beautified the heavens. Garnished them. Could it be then that we're being told that the Spirit had a role to play in the reality of the creation? I understand that we typically consider that God the Father designed it and God the Son executed the creation. Colossians 1 verses 16 and following clearly say that Jesus the Son executed the matter of creation. But now we're learning the Spirit also had a role to play. The Spirit beautified, garnished, to say that somewhat differently. It would appear it would not be improper to say that the Spirit organized the matters of creation into its its final form of usability, into its final state that the Father and Son wished it to have. I think in light of the word garnish, it wouldn't be an overstatement to put it that way. But let's go ahead and add some more things to it. You'll notice that not only is the Spirit addressed in the ways we have seen so far. Jump down in Genesis chapter 1 and consider with me the 26th verse. Now this is very familiar to us, perhaps as much so as any of the other parts of this opening chapter. But it says, "...and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And you and I have noted many times that here was a conversation or at least a matter of presentation on the part of one member of the Godhead, inclusive of the others. Let us make man in our image. It would appear that that would include not only the Father as well as the Son, but it would also include the Spirit. May I suggest it would seem then that the Spirit had a role to play in that which would be the creation of the human family. We'll have to see more about that here in just a moment. May I suggest that Job 33, 4 may be a rather dramatic commentary on that statement. Job 33, verse number 4. The inspired writer there says, The Spirit of God hath made me. Did you hear that? Here was an inspired writer making the statement, The Spirit of God hath made me. Now keep in mind... We are aware of the fact that, again, if God the Father designed the matter that you and I would call mankind, and Jesus the Son executed that creation, you notice here that the Spirit had some role of finalizing that. Because Job here made the statement, or at least in the book of Job, that the Spirit of God hath made me. God's Spirit ultimately had a role to play in the fasting of the human family. May I suggest we never overlook the Spirit even in the matter of creation. Let's add to that the following. Isn't it interesting how that a number of passages even speak of the fact the Holy Spirit has a part to play in sustaining life? Not only did the Spirit aid or at least contribute in some way to its creation, but He also has a part to play in its sustenance. I would invite you to notice Psalm 104 verse 30. That's the text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Joe read from that chapter, and again, may I invite you to note the language. Psalm 104, verse 30. Thou sendest forth thy spirit. As the psalmist made these remarkable statements about what God had done, inclusive in the list is this Thou sendest forth thy spirit. Now, he's talking about God, but God sent forth his spirit, and then he goes on to say, They are created. Note again, the creative activity attached to the Spirit of God. Maybe that's not a surprising thing to us. We know that God is all-powerful, and we know that He's mighty. Well, surely the Son is able to carry about matters in creation, and so is the Father. May we take note, the Spirit is as well. Let's add to that another one. In Job 27, verse number 3, that same book of Job that we had noted just a bit earlier, This time the statement reads as follows, "...all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils." In the sense that you and I breathe, we are agents that are in fact living, and that is highlighted by the fact that we are capable of breathing, and yet keep in mind that that word breathing in Hebrew as well as in Greek basically looks the same as the word spirit." That is the same as, say, we possess that soul, if you please. And there again it reads as follows, All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Now please don't take that too far. That's not to say the Spirit literally and personally indwells each of us. We're going to devote a whole lesson at some point to the indwelling of the Spirit here in a few weeks. But for now, it doesn't it seem clear by His association to breath and to life. And He says that's maintained by the Spirit. May I suggest each day then that you and I continue to live upon this planet. Each day and each opportunity that is ours to continue in breath and in life, there's a sense in which we can be thankful to the Spirit for making that a possibility and for upholding it by the nature of the things which He does. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide... I've tried to summarize some then of what we have at least learned in this host of passages. Among other things, we've seen that the Holy Spirit appears to have had a role in the beautifying, in the organizing of the creation, as it occurred in Genesis 1 and 2. And furthermore, when it came to the very matter of that creation, that's even exhibited in the nature of the creation of mankind, let us make man in our image. This work of the Spirit so far, how interesting. Let's go a step further then. Because may I say that there's more that might be said about this. However, we're going to move it in a slightly different angle or direction, perhaps like this. Not only did the Spirit have, it appears, a vital role in the material creation, in organization, in beautification, in garnishing, the Spirit has a vital role also in spiritual creation. Please note the distinction. On the one hand was the physical creation of this universe and everything in it, and the Spirit had a role in that. But also, might we take note of the number of ways in which the Spirit has contributed to spiritual creation. Let me begin in Luke one thirty-five. You might recall that as Gabriel spoke with Mary. Gabriel told her, the Holy Spirit will come on thee. And you're, of course, going to bring forth a a baby boy. But you'll notice it was the Holy Spirit that was going to come on Mary, impregnating her, if you please, and equipping her with the capability of bringing the Christ child into the world. Now, might we also notice in Matthew 1 verse 20, again, something similar therein noted, where the work of the Spirit is highlighted, this time in conversation between the angel and Gabriel. I'm sorry, the angel and Joseph. But to move on to the next one, keeping in mind this discussion of Jesus, isn't it true in Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, at the scene of the Master's baptism, He had gone to the river Jordan there. He asked John to baptize Him. And verse number 16 points out rather beautifully the following. The Holy Spirit descended upon the Master in the form of a dove, and the text says that it remained on Him. Note again, that equipped Jesus, according to John chapter 3, verses 31 and following, equipping Him for the charge and the commission that He was in need of carrying out. He had the Spirit without measure. Look at the next one, if you would. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, have you ever given thought of how Jesus went to the cross? Would you please note that verse with me? The language is very telling. Hebrews 9, verse number 14, tells us something about the manner in which Jesus went to the cross. If I may just read that one verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, the language says that it was Jesus who through the Spirit. The agency that prompted Jesus in regard to the cross, the agency that moved Him, motivated Him, set Him, if you please, on that course that would lead to the cross was none other than the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was the one through whom the Master proceeded to the cross. Aren't you a bit impressed then by the ongoing livelihood the Spirit offered to Christ? Look at the next one. In Romans 8 verse 11, what about the resurrection of Christ? Here we're told that Jesus was resurrected on that Sunday morning through the agency of the Spirit. The Spirit had then a role not only in the Lord's birth, in His baptism, in His ongoing preaching, in His crucifixion, but also in His resurrection. The Spirit, again, was not to be ignored in any of these. By this point, our plot thickens somewhat. Other than Jesus, what about each of you and me? In what way does spiritual regeneration occur? That is to say, how is anybody made alive from the perspective of God. We each know that a person can be dead, and certainly is, in trespasses and sins, to borrow the language of Ephesians 2 verse 1. But I would call to your attention Titus 3 verse 5. I know that I speak before a group of people who've been baptized, those who have known the blessedness of the gospel's invitation, and yet Titus 3 5 says something about what you and I did as we responded to the gospel. It says, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost." When you and I entered those baptismal waters, we were cankered over in sin. And yet, as the blood of Christ cleansed us, we were renewed, that text says, but it was the renewal of the Holy Spirit... Now again, that's going to open up a discussion for us in a couple of lessons as we look at the details of exactly how the Spirit does this. But certainly it's a remarkable thing to notice that renewal is attached to the Holy Spirit. You and I have been renewed by the Holy Ghost. That renewal leads us to note this. Aren't you amazed that that was the very thing that Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5? That one that came to Jesus by nine and said, We know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And you may recall that Jesus in verse 3 said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was a bit confused and perplexed. And He made sure we all understood that, I guess, in the language of verse 4. Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born, He asked? But then Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And there we have it. This renewal is again highlighted in the very language that the Master spoke with Nicodemus about. Surely, as you and I close that slide... We can then not only appreciate that the Spirit had a role to play in the very creation of all things, in beautifying, organizing, and garnishing, but also a rather critical role in spiritual renewal, spiritual creation, and every one of us can be very thankful indeed for that. All of that in some way prepares us for what is to follow. Because if one were to ask, what above all others does it seem is the primary work of the Spirit, the primary task that He has chosen for Himself, perhaps it could be summarized in revealing the will of heaven. The Spirit in revealing the will of heaven. I know that you and I are so thankful that the Spirit has revealed to us the will of God. And so for the next few moments... We're going to look at a number of verses. So we'll be looking at each one of these in turn. But I realize in so many ways these are passages easy to read past, easy to overlook. But we're going to cast a bit of a spotlight on them. Let's start in Exodus 35, verse number 30. Here it was, the scene that God had already delivered to Moses. The fact that there was going to be a tabernacle and that there was going to be a rather dramatic recognition of its importance. But the matter to us comes in verse number 30. May I ask, how was the tabernacle constructed? We know that God had delivered to Moses the particulars of it, but let's face it, there had to be some workmen. There had to be individuals who literally carried out that work in metal and in the various linens and in the other considerations of that. Would you look with me as we start in verse 30 of Exodus 35. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he hath filled him with the Spirit. May you and I never forget the construction of that tabernacle depended on the wisdom and workmanship of Bezalel, and later, Aholiab will be mentioned as well. And yet, those were equipped by way of the Spirit so they could carry out the instruction. Does that not indicate that the Spirit revealed in some rather remarkable way to Bezalel how that work was to be carried out so that it would be done as the Father wanted it? Look at the next one with me in Judges 3, verse number 10. As we jump forward to that book that we're about to start on Sunday morning here very shortly. Verse number 10 of Judges 3 says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Without developing all of that in great detail, may we say, the discussion there is with respect to the first of the judges of Israel. The very first one, his name was Ophniel. And here it says, The Spirit of God came on him. I've tried to summarize it like this. When Othniel led the children of Israel in battle against the Mesopotamians, who equipped him so that that victory might be Israel's, and who equipped him with the necessary knowledge to defeat the enemy. The Spirit of the Lord is what it says. Again, aren't we impressed the Spirit was involved in revealing that which would be the will of heaven to carry out this? How about Judges 6.34? three chapters forward. This time, our discussion is Gideon. Would you note what happened with respect to him? It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Perhaps that's all we need to say. Gideon, at that time, was shortly to lead the children of Israel in battle against the Midianites. These people had oppressed Israel, in fact, made their life miserable for a long, long time. And yet, God selected Gideon equipping him by the Spirit come upon him. And in fact, he led the children of Israel to victory over those people. But the Spirit of God had a role to play in the presentation of the will of heaven so that Gideon would be able to do that successfully. Beyond Gideon, could we mention Jephthah in Judges chapter 11? This time, verse number 29. Judges 11 verse 29. The text says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over to the children of Ammon, among other things. Here was a scene in which we notice, again, the children of Israel were shortly to overwhelm an enemy. This time it's the Ammonites. Jephthah was the judge, and the text says the Spirit of God came upon him equipping him and revealing to him that which was a necessary accompaniment to the features of this battle. How about the next one? Judges 13.25. This time the judge on the scene of discussion was a man named Samson. And the text says the Spirit of God began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. I believe we're seeing a bit of a pattern Many of the judges, it was said of them, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And you and I appreciate that when it did, it led them to know what to do, revealing the things of God so that they would be prepared and ready for the battle that was to shortly ensue. Now in regard to Samson, we can now jump forward to the time of the kingship. In First Samuel chapter 10, verse number 6, this time it was a man named Saul, the first king of Israel. It was said on that occasion that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. This was the prophet Samuel. As he spoke to Saul, he said, The Spirit of the Lord's going to come upon you. But notice how it goes on to say this, And thou shalt prophesy. You and I know well that to prophesy was to foretell, or at least to speak the things of God. How did Saul know how to do this? The Spirit of God came upon him, equipping him and making him able to engage in that work of prophecy. Past the matter of Saul, could we mention David, the second king of Israel? I listed several verses. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, this was the scene when, in fact, the very matter of the mention of David as the next king was made. That verse reads, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. I'll not even finish the verse. The Spirit of God, when Samuel anointed him, came upon David, again making him ready and preparing him to serve as the second king of Israel. Perhaps it's in light of all that, I would perhaps ask you to note the grandeur of 2 Samuel 23, 2. David himself speaking said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and His word is in my tongue. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, David said. He knew that the Spirit of God had equipped him, and the things he wrote by inspiration were the things of God. There are times when there are individuals who say, those people who wrote the Bible, they didn't know what they were writing. That's not so. David said the Spirit of God was on him, and he knew that what he was writing was the things of God. And doesn't that give us an appreciation for how the Spirit had revealed the things of God to these members of the human family? As you and I close that slide, I thought one more perhaps would be interesting. It's the scene concerning Jehaziel in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 14. In that particular passage... The wording is very special. Second Chronicles 20, verse number 14. This was during the life and times of King Jehoshaphat. And this little verse reads like this. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed, by reason of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Did you note the connection that occurred in that passage? It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and then in the very next statement it says, He said, Thus saith the Lord. The Spirit equipped Jehaziel to encourage, to reveal the will of heaven, to remind them the battle isn't yours. God's going to take care of you. And in the verses that follow, He made note of the marvelous victory that was going to belong to the people of God. One more time, a matter of revelation. I would suggest then, as you and I close that slide, we've seen a host of Old Testament examples. I suppose we would each have a bit of wonderment about the New Testament. Could something similar be said about the work of the Spirit in revealing in New Testament days and in New Testament times the features of what is the will of heaven? We perhaps will be somewhat brief about some of these, But the idea is still very keen and very much revealed in the Word of God. Let's begin like this. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 20, when the Master sent out those apostles and the others on what we would call today the limited commission, what is said about the work of the Spirit on that occasion? Matthew chapter 10 verse number 20. It says, For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. As these disciples went forth on the limited commission, and remember, they had power to cast out demons, and they had power to, in fact, do many other amazing things. And yet, he says, when you preach, it isn't you, it's the Spirit that's in you. The Spirit is equipping you to reveal this beautiful message of heaven. Look at the next one in John 14 26. I've listed several verses there for your consideration. We may only briefly mention the Old Testament references. But in John 14, it goes on to say, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. Oh, how thankful we can be for that work of the Spirit. Those apostles, Jesus point-blank told them, the Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance everything I taught you. Please take note, they were supernaturally guided by that Spirit. You and I don't have that kind of thing today. We've got to study the Bible, and we've got to appreciate it. They had the Spirit constantly working and reminding them of what Jesus had taught them. Even after He had ascended back to the Father, they would be equipped by and led by the work of the Spirit. Isn't it amazing then in that connection? We notice John sixteen thirteen. Jesus one more time on the very same evening in which He had said these things in John 14, He said, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall speak. See, that shall He reveal. Amazingly, then, we notice that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, led those apostles to all truth. He revealed the will of heaven to them. Perhaps one more thing. That leads us to cast a strong spotlight on basically the last section of the lesson tonight. On that document you hold in your hand. How did you and I come to have the Bible? How did the God of heaven see fit to make it available to the human family? After all, it seems as though there were so many particulars. At first, it had to be written down by somebody. But then once it was written, it had to be preserved through the years so that the human family would have it. That takes on a heightened understanding when you and I remember there have been many individuals who wanted to destroy it. There have been those who have hated it. It has been their life's goal to see that it was destroyed and every one of them failed. You and I still have it. And it shall continue until the end of time. Look with me at some of these verses. In Acts chapter 1 verse 16, to select one of the two that's listed there, you'll notice in that beautiful passage the following simple statements made. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. You may even want to underline that one. For that very clearly and point blank says that those scriptures which were in the Old Testament admittedly that David spoke, it says in that verse, it was the Holy Spirit that revealed it to David. What David wrote, what he uttered, was by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And so these scriptures that you and I possess, both Old and New Testament, are due to the revelatory work of the Holy Spirit. It was because of Him. Look at what He's done. Let's read onward. In Luke chapter, I'm sorry, let me look at Isaiah 61.1 first. Because when the Lord quotes this, it is going to be a rather amazing thing. In Isaiah 61, verse number 1, while you're turning to that passage, I'll just make a quick note of almost an interesting side note. You may recall that when Jesus, rather soon after beginning His public ministry, came back to His hometown in Nazareth, the attendant handed Him a scroll. Jesus, and you can imagine the scroll of Isaiah was huge. Jesus turned in that scroll to Isaiah 61. Of all the things He might have chosen to read, Jesus read Isaiah 61. Listen as I read to you what Jesus read that day in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound." to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Now in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus actually read that that day, Some 750 years had passed from the time Isaiah wrote that until Jesus read it in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, it says, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he read verbatim the very thing I just read from Isaiah 61. But did you notice the spirit of the lord's upon me the spirit equipped those old testament scriptures and made them something that jesus could have read let's look even further in ezekiel 11 verse number 5 we have something said about the prophets of the, the, the prophets of the old testament ezekiel 11 verse number 5 there it says and i'll begin reading in verse 4 Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man, and the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Again, that connection is rather amazing. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and yet he thus quickly said, Thus saith the Lord." When Ezekiel and the other prophets thus preached to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were saying the things of God. The Spirit revealed to them what to, what to speak. That's truly fascinating. And yet, it prepares us to look at the last section of the lesson tonight, which brings us full circle to that book you hold in your lap. The Word of God, the Scriptures. And look at some of these statements. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, perhaps the statements that detail for us the work of the Spirit could really surround in a dramatic way this verse. These two verses read like this. "'Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man.' But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That phrase, moved by the Holy Ghost, literally in Greek, it carries the sense of the way that wind and water move a ship. A ship will move the way that those elements tell it to. And that's the same thing with regard to the prophets. They were moved by that force, if you please, connected with the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, the Spirit guided them to write what they did. He was the superintending influence, if you please, behind them. No wonder then in that light we're prepared for several others. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 2, speaking about the Scriptures, isn't it fascinating to listen to this description? I'll begin reading in verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up after that He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles. Note the wording. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles. And so those apostles, as they were again delivered that message through the agency of the Spirit, they thus were equipped with all truth. They were prepared to preach and teach the infallible and unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 verse 8. Look at the next one. In Romans 14 17, as far as the Spirit, we learn immediately this thing. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The joy that you and I have in the citizenship of the kingdom is revealed and made available and sent to us by way of the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of the Holy Ghost. That joy prepares us to note in a very quick way a very brief listing. I've asked you to notice all of these and every one of them indicate that the things of heaven have been made known to you and me because of the Holy Spirit. Out of that list, I'll only select one of them. It's the First Corinthians 2. In that particular chapter, the wording is so sublime. I'll begin reading in verse number 9 of First Corinthians 2. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, "'neither have entered into the heart of man "'the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. "'But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit.'" God has revealed the things that He has revealed by way of His Spirit. Let's read on. "'For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. "'For what man knoweth the things of a man, "'save the Spirit of man which is in him?' Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. There it just plainly says it. What you and I know, in terms of what God wanted to reveal, we know it because the Spirit has made it available to us. Let's read on. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Holy Ghost teacheth. That book that you hold in your lap, it was authored by the Holy Spirit. He equipped those roughly 40 men to write it, and He has sustained it through the years, and the Spirit has revealed these things to us. We have the perfect Word of God Let's close our lesson then with this summary statement, doing so like this. We've looked tonight at the Holy Spirit's work in creation, how He beautified, how He organized, how He garnished. And then we even noted in spiritual creation what it was the Spirit has done. And finally, we have looked at His work in revelation Truly, I think it fair to say, the Father designed, the Son executed, the Holy Spirit revealed. And aren't we thankful for the work of the Spirit? This prepares us for some of the next lessons in our series to look at even more of what the Spirit has done and the way He has done it and how He continues to do these things as well. But tonight, if there's anyone in the sound of my voice that's not a faithful member of the kingdom of God. Don't you realize how perilous is your condition? How dangerous it is? For you may pass from the scenes of this life, or the Master may come back. Either way, you'd be lost eternally. You need to obey the gospel or come back to your first love, whichever is the need of your life. If we, in fact, could do that tonight, giving you assistance in that way, notice we don't do it because it's our idea. It's the Spirit's idea. It's the Spirit's will that it be done that way. And so, if you are an alien sinner and you would wish to become a Christian, you do that because the Spirit has told us that you need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If though you have become a child of God but are not faithful this evening, again, it's the Spirit who says, Come back to your first love, Revelation 2 verse 5. If we could be of help to you by making acknowledgment of sins known publicly, as you confess those things and repent of them, we'll be happy to pray to God on your behalf, and He has promised to forgive you. If we could be of help tonight, we encourage you to come. We invite you to come while together we stand and sing.